Hello, everyone. I'm Priest Willis, and this is the Marketplace Podcast, episode number 75. Today, I'm joined by Patrick McGinnis, who is a venture capitalist and private equity investor who founded an investor group after a decade on Wall Street to provide strategic advice to investors, entrepreneurs, and fast-growing businesses. In this capacity, he has worked in a range of settings from building startups from the ground up in Silicon Valley to acting as an expert consultant to the World Bank in Latin America, Africa, and the Middle East. Patrick is the consummate 10% entrepreneur. In fact, he wrote a book, The 10% Entrepreneur. He has built a diverse portfolio of investments outside of his day job. This portfolio encompasses fast-growing new ventures in the U.S., Latin America, Europe, and Asia, including Ipsy, the world's largest online beauty community, Blue Smart, the inventor of the world's first smart connected carrying on suitcase, and Affinity, a big data company that is reinventing the call center industry. He has also been a partner in multiple real estate investments. Listen, Patrick is the guy we need to hear from because he's tapped into so many other ventures outside of what would be considered his quote unquote day job. So without further ado, here is my man, Patrick McGinnis. Thank you to our sponsor Thrive Theme for today's episode. Thrive Themes has blazingly fast WordPress templates and plugins built to get more traffic, more subscribers, more clients, and more customers for you. Thrive Themes makes more than just themes. The company is well known for its powerful array of marketing tools and plugins for WordPress, such as Thrive Leads, Thrive Content Builder, and Thrive Headline Optimizer. I use them and I've created a site and a plugin for a site called I want to be an affiliate.com literally in a matter of 30 minutes. I downloaded WordPress, plugged in Thrive Themes, and it worked fine. Go into today's episode, click on the link that says Thrive Themes, and you'll be taken to their site. You definitely want to give them a try. Thrive Themes, a blazingly fast WordPress template and plugin for your site. Hey, Patrick, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Yeah, excited to have you. So as I was kind of mentioning offline, I read the book, which is why I'm really excited to share with our audience here. But your life is like an onion. It kind of has a lot of layers to it. And did it make you cry like an onion does? <laughs> it did. I I teared up towards the middle a little bit. But I I think that's why this this conversation is even more important because there are a lot of layers and complexities to people, entrepreneurs, whatever the case is. And I think your story will resonate with a lot of our listeners today. So why don't you tell the people a little bit about yourself? Sure. I grew up in the state of Maine. I live in New York City and I've been here for most of the last 20, 15, 20 years. The concrete jungle. Exactly. Although I live in the village, so I have a view of the sky. It's not so bad. I'm near the river. And I come from a very small town, actually. But when I was 18, I went off to college. I studied at Georgetown in the School of Foreign Service, and I fell in love with Latin America. I ended up living in Latin America as a student and then later working on Wall Street. And I was back and forth to Latin America, first as a banker, then for a mercifully short amount of time. And then I became an investor and started investing in tech startups 
in Latin America, eventually went back and got my MBA at Harvard Business School, and then started investing in companies all over the world. I'm sure we'll discuss more, but I've gone out to do some other things since that time. But Is that the Dirigo Advisors? Yes, Am I pronouncing? that's right. That's my company now. So I started that about seven years ago. Got it. So your main focus up to this point, and we're going to get into the book a little bit, but your main focus has been basically being a VC. Yes. Being a VC and a private equity investor, that is the, that's kind of has been my education as a professional. So this is interesting. You mentioned Latin America, which I've done work with Lenovo and Lenovo has some penetration in Latin America, but outside of Mexico City, there doesn't seem to be tons of money there. And I could be wrong, but one of the things that I've positioned with Lenovo is like, hey, we should consider Bitcoin. Overstock is getting into it and all that other good stuff. Is there really that much opportunity that you've had some inroads into Latin America? Yes. Latin America is actually a very attractive market. It is not oftentimes the first place people go, right? Because they think, okay, U.S. is the biggest market. Then, you know, maybe Europe. Then, of course, Asia and China. But Latin America is a is a region with, I believe, the number is about you know between six hundred and seven hundred million people in it. It is one language, so you can attack that with one solution. It is reasonably prosperous. I mean, depending on the place where you go. It's been a place that's really started to spawn a lot of innovation. So it is a really relevant market, but it's not an easy market. You got to know what you're doing. You got to have the right people around the table. And so it's obviously part of what I've done over my career is make tons of mistakes and learn how to do things the right way. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about some of those mistakes and doing things the right way, too. Let's just take a step back a little bit. So you mentioned Georgetown then going to Harvard Business School. Has that always been the type of person you were focused on business, getting into economics or... Is it that you graduated after high school and just had this rebirth of Patrick? It seems like you, unlike many other people out there, are doing exactly what you went to college for, which obviously is a lot different for other people who go to school and come out and are in a field that is totally unrelated to what they went to school. I love how it looks that way from the outside. (laughs) (laughs) It really does look like that to me. Well, you know, it's funny. So when I was going to college, I knew that I wanted to do something international just because I guess, because I'd never done anything international and I read about it and I was interested in languages and things. But as a kid, I never left the country. Actually, I never left America until I was 20 years old, Mm. but I was in the school of foreign service studying international relations. And all my classmates were kids who had like grown up all over the world. And I, you know, I was just sort of (laughs) trying to make my way. And um, you were just Patrick from Maine. Yeah, exactly. I was like, trying my best to fit in, but I loved the topic. And I thought I wanted to go work in, in government in Washington. So I was you know, studying in Georgetown, which is in DC. I had a, a little uh, internship on the Hill. And then I won this scholarship from the Rody Foundation to go study in Argentina for the year. And I left the country, this American kid with my khakis and my fleece and my white baseball cap and my <laughs> A6 sneakers. And I came back wearing like black jeans, a leather jacket, <laughs> slick back hair, totally Latin. Um, I learned Spanish and I came back and I, then I decided, well, I love, um, I was really interested in international trade. So I decided that I wanted to study and focus on maybe like being a trade negotiator, like negotiating things like NAFTA. So that's what I focused on in, in my undergrad, but I didn't know what to do next. And then everybody was going to wall street to work in investment banking. And I thought, well, I actually didn't even know what it was, but I did an interview because they paid a lot of money. Like my first year out, I was going to make more than my dad did. Wow. It was crazy. Like it was a crazy thing. You know, I did fine. I mean, we had a great life up in Maine, but they just pay a lot of money on Wall Street. So I was thinking like, this is it. And so I went and interviewed and I got a job 
And, and it could be argued that they paid too much, huh, Patrick, based on what we've seen well, in recent well, New no, York just, City ain't cheap, but but I will well listen, I mean, that was like when I was first starting out. So it wasn't like I was like raking it in billions. But, right, right. But yes, I mean, there are clearly massive issues in terms of risk and reward on Wall Street. And some of those have been fixed, some haven't. Yeah, I'm joking. Uh, but that was hard. No, no, no. But I get your point. Believe me, I'm not going to sit here and defend Wall Street to anybody. Like they, they can do it themselves. So yeah, that was how I got started. But that was kind of an unplanned trip. Uh, what really was driven by my desire to do something international. And if I went into banking, I could do Latin America and you know follow up my interests that I developed in Argentina. So that was just a great way for me to get somebody else to pay for my travel to Latin America. Really smart. That's really good. So is that how we get into the book where you're talking about being a 10% entrepreneurs that you sort of found out ways to leverage companies that you work for to ultimately get to where you want to be? Well, it took a little longer. So in the beginning, I worked on Wall Street Then I was lucky enough to get a job doing venture capital investing. And I love that. And then I went to business school and I came out and got another job. And I was not a particularly entrepreneurial minded kind of, I mean, we all grow up, we're born entrepreneurial. We have our paper routes and we have our, you know, I delivered the newspaper and I did things like that. You know, I used to mow people's lawn for money. So I was entrepreneurial in that way, but I had no desire to have my own company. It just wasn't mm-hmm. even in my reality. And what happened was I was working for a big company, AIG, in the year 2008. And AIG was at the center of the 2008 financial scandal in mm-hmm. um, the crisis. And my company blew up. Despite I had nothing to do with the reasons it blew up, but it just did. Right. And I had this big awakening, which was, listen, I worked really hard to get from my 20,000 person town in Maine to working you know, on Perk Avenue. And I did everything right. I got collected all the right degrees and all the right stuff in my resume. And guess what? It didn't matter. Because mm. I was like Mr. Protestant work ethic, like just work super hard and you'll be successful. And yes, of course, hard work is important to being successful. It doesn't mean that you can do everything right. And then some person you've never met does something stupid and you were out on the street. And so I thought to myself, well, I'm never going to be in that position again. God willing, I will never ever end up out of a job or losing all my money. The I had my stock fell 97%. I'm never going to end up there again because if I fail in the future, it will be because I made a bad decision. I did something wrong. And if I succeed, it will be because of the hard work that I do. And that's when I decided the best way to express that desire, the best way to achieve that objective was to get involved with entrepreneurial projects because, you know, those times, those are really directly correlated with the hard work you put in and your ideas and your efforts. But I was too afraid to go become a full-time entrepreneur because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I knew as a VC how risky it is to just go out and build a company. So I thought, why don't I get involved in other people's ventures, invest in them, become an advisor, investing my time for ownership, or maybe starting things on the side of my own, but, you know, in a part-time way, that way I could figure out if they work before jumping in full-time. And that is what I started calling being a 10% entrepreneur because I decided I was going to try to dedicate a minimum of 10% of my time and money to doing exactly that. I like that. It's a really bite-sized approach towards entrepreneurship, which I can appreciate because a lot of people, sometimes you get this perspective from people that you should just quit whatever you're doing, full-time job that is, and just go into entrepreneurship as if it's that easy. And people have families, they have responsibilities, they want to eat. And just doesn't necessarily work out that way. So I love the perspective of being a 10% entrepreneur. So let's talk about that transition. You know, obviously you kind of found yourself out on the street, as you put it. And it's funny you're saying this because I'm flying from London yesterday 
And as I'm on the plane, I'm looking outside and there's nothing wrong with the guy who's loading up the bags on the airplane, but I'm looking at him and I'm thinking to myself, it's a simple firing and losing a few things that I could be forced to having to do that. Right. Yes. And so if you're not creating something and things on your own, you're subject to everybody else. So you've seen that very clearly. Yeah. How did you begin that transition? How did you work towards that? You can be working at the airline or you can be working in some big corporate job where they're paying you tons of money. But if your job disappears and it may have nothing to do with you, merger, who knows? I mean, there's all kinds of people that lose their jobs for really reasons that are a bit random, to be honest. And it doesn't matter because they're out there and they, you know, if you're like 43 years old and you got to start your career over or look for a new job, it's just not a place you want to be. Yeah, it's painful. Just basically the transition for me was I had that burning desire to as much as possible have autonomy and ownership in the things that I did and not be exposed to these unforeseen forces because because everybody, every friend of mine, every friend of mine, smart, some of these people have done very well and they're brilliant people and they're well-educated and they have great resumes and they're just great. Every one of them has had a massive massive career implosion running out of money like we're like lending the i mean it's just it all it happens to everybody mm -hmm. that was my transition and so i just decided that i was going to be an owner of all kinds of different things so that i would have part of the upside of those things and be diversified so patrick what do you say to the person though that in your position who is saying look i don't want to be trapped in a position where i'm working you know for someone all my life but i know i can't leave today yep. and i want to move to that 10 percent entrepreneur but I really don't even have any money to do 10%. What would you say to that person? So you don't have to have money necessarily because nowadays, Priest, you and I could get together, come up with an idea, put up a website, start advertising on social media, probably start doing sales pretty quickly mm -hmm. with like almost no money, right? Mm -hmm. How much does it cost to put a website up? It's like eight bucks a month. Yeah. I mean, the hosted, yeah. we're talking about eight bucks a month. WordPress is free. You could join affiliate programs for free and do it that way. I mean, you're absolutely right. There's so many ways to attack it. You can survey people to see if the idea is good for free. We used to cost, when I started my career as a VC, hundreds of thousands of dollars to build a website. Basically free now. So like, I understand if you haven't done it before, it may seem intimidating from the outside that you need all this money. And yeah, if you want to invest in people's companies, yes, you need money. But so many people, and I have these people in my book, so many people started their companies with nothing. I love this story. This is so inspiring. I had a woman that I met, this is in London, and she works for a consulting firm as an executive assistant. And she just loved making candles. You know, they're nice. Mm -hmm. you know, it's great things. So she bought a, a candle making kit for, I don't know, hundred bucks, started making candles, starting selling them on the weekends at different fairs and things like that. Fast forward a couple of years later, she's now making many tens of thousands of dollars a year selling these candles. She's now in national retailers. She never invested any money in this thing. She just grew it slowly on the side. And this is not like some high tech business either, where she had to program something. She just put up a little website. So that's the thing that's great about entrepreneurship is because of all these new tools and because of the new ways we can sell to people, you don't need to have tons of money. You do need to put time aside and mind share aside and try things and maybe make a mistake, but that's fine. It's all in your control. Yeah. Do you think that's the biggest piece, Patrick, is that a lot of people, it's not necessarily the money, but they let the analysis behind them having to start a business essentially paralyze them in doing it. Oh, for sure. And I think a lot of times people feel like they're on their own and they have to be on their own. 
which is not true. Um, many of the people who are successful as 10% entrepreneurs do so because they partner up with a friend or somebody who has a similar business interest or a, you know, their partner or their kids or their sibling. Um, it is a mindset issue. These days, anybody can do this. And so the people who tend to not end up doing this are people who have an idea or a dream or maybe want to do this, but they start telling themselves no before they even take one step. Mm -hmm. I'm too busy. I don't want to fail. I, I'm this, I'm that. Listen, I could tell you 50 excuses why I can't do these things. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I listen, I can make up excuses too, and I can come up with plenty of reasons why I'm too busy or I'm too afraid. But the reality is there's no reason to be afraid because even if you fail, it's just an experiment. And if you make time, the, the great thing is if you choose wisely, and I, we can talk about this and it's in the book, if you choose wisely, it won't feel like work. Let's talk about that though. I was going to bring that part of it up is that when you are, I hate using this word, but I have to, when you're passionate about something or you enjoy doing something, it's part of the fabric of who you are and it doesn't feel like work. But when I hear people say I'm hustling, I'm grinding and they're on Instagram, like just staying up. I mean, how fake have we become in this society about being an entrepreneur? Talk about that a little bit. What is the difference between the guy that's just doing it and it, it's just an engine of who he is and the guy that is trying to have the look? It's so true. I love that you said that because I call that. So I have a concept that I wrote about in the book called Entrepreneurship Inc. And that is the industry of people that make money off of you mm -hmm. by getting you to pay for things or buy things that make you think that you can become entrepreneurs, even though what they're selling you is complete BS. BS. Yep. You could say bullshit so, too yeah, if you want to. I, well, you know, it's, there may be children. <laughs> that's, in the car. that's true. Um, that's true. You know, I follow some of these Instagrams just to know what, what people are doing. I always like learning and seeing what people are up to. And I mean, I, <laughs> it's not supposed to be that damn hard. Yes, it's hard work. Spend less time Instagramming how hard you're working and just go do some work. <laughs> That's right. And I mean, I get it. I think it's inspiring, but like people spend their time writing inspirational quotes about entrepreneurship. <laughs> I learned early in my career, maybe because I worked on Wall Street where there's just none of that. It's like, just do the work, then go home. I work in a co-working space and I look around and like nobody does anything all day. Like people are just like, I don't know why these people spend their days. And I'm like, I get in there, I work and I leave. Patrick, that is so funny. We have a big, big co-working space. I won't say the name here in Raleigh, Durham. And you're in this co-working space. And I swear to God, all you do is you look around and you see the people looking around at other people looking around like nobody is getting anything done. You want it to be collaborative. I think they feel fulfilled that they have the co-working space and they're like, OK, I'm, this is it for me. So it's hilarious that you yeah, I work in a WeWork, OK? Um, I, I live three blocks from WeWork and I love, I think WeWork's great, but there's two types of people at WeWork. There's the WeWorks and the We Don't Work. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's right. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's so funny because it's so true. For those of you who work in a co-meeting space or somewhere along those lines, you know that's funny because it's very, very true. And by the way, like if you're one of those We Don't Works, you should keep your dog with you instead of having your dog come to my office because I'm working. I like dogs a lot, but I like dogs when, like when I'm not on a conference call. So why do you think entrepreneurship is kind of so overhyped and so, I mean, why is this happening right now? What do you think that's about? I was on a panel like a couple of weeks ago. And one of the guys said, today, entrepreneurship is equivalent of being in a band. <laughs> you know what it was like, you know, 15 years ago, which I think is, I don't know about that because I think that there is more to it than that because 
being in a band's cool. You know, a lot of times it's just to like get girls or party or whatever. Totally. Entrepreneurship does have tremendous value in terms of learning and building skills and meeting people and putting yourself out there and testing yourself. So, you know, I sound like pessimistic or sarcastic. At the end of the day, I'm a fundamentally an optimistic and I believe everybody should be getting involved in entrepreneurship. What I guess I'm sort of against is this glorification of a lifestyle that's completely unrealistic. Like, let's talk about the realities of entrepreneurship. Let's talk about the struggles and why it's hard and not use that as some marketing ploy. And I think that's the problem is that we live in a time that is incredibly ego expressive. People broadcast their lives out there and we want to optimize them and make it look like as awesome as possible at all hours of the day. And that is filtered into the way we work. So mm-hmm. nobody's going to shoot a picture that doesn't make it look like they're being hardcore or whatever. Never gonna, you're not going like to Snapchat like your boring 2 p.m. conference call. <laughs> you're going to try to make it look funny. And maybe you should just talk on the phone instead of Snapchatting. That's all I'm saying. That's just it, right? You typically don't see Bill Gates or Mark Cuban which I know you have a, the Mark Cuban perspective of entrepreneurship, but you know, Warren Buffett and all those guys putting up Instagram posts of them signing deals or, and I, I'm optimistic too, but I know this is something that you've addressed in the book, which is why it's important that we talk about it is that, Hey, you know, some people work harder at looking like they work hard versus just getting stuff done. Yeah. I think it's a detriment to their business. So why they're comparing why this guy is successful or this gal is successful and they're not, Hey, the first step is they're not trying to look like it. They're just doing stuff. Yes, that is so true. And the best investment I've ever made and probably will ever make, which is a company I discussed in the book, it's called Ipsy. The CEO is a a really close friend of mine and he works really hard and he doesn't try to glorify that or get, try to be the hero or whatever. He just gets it done Mm -hmm. and he lets his team work hard and they create a culture. If the CEO, this is another thing, like for those of you who are CEOs or entrepreneurs listening on this call. Think about the message you're sending to the people who work on your team. If you spend all your time glamorizing your days on social media, what's the message you're sending to your customers, your clients, to the people who work for you? I think it's a bad one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. So how do you know for those who either are considering going to be this 10% investor where they're like, yeah, I want to pick up some small opportunities while I work this full-time job and, or they're doing it right now. And they're like, you know what, Patrick, I'm in the middle of thinking about making the jump. When do you know it's the right time to leave that full-time job, go all in 100%? So there are a couple of different ways to think about this. There's different types of 10% entrepreneurship. There's the kinds that are always going to be part-time, like being an investor or an advisor, You know, investing your time or money for ownership in something. Those are great because they don't take a lot of time and they can be very complementary to your day job because you learn new things that you bring back into the workplace to make your company more successful and entrepreneurial. That's always going to stay as a side gig. Now, the founder is somebody who starts and runs a company on the side. That person, yes, will potentially go full time. The critical part there is, you know, the value of going full time when you start is that you can test out ideas in a very low risk way, make tons of mistakes, but you can still pay your bills, right? And then as you learn and get better and the company starts to grow and take off, then you'll start to say, well, maybe, maybe I should go full time. So what you can do is this, this is kind of the decision point that I advise people to kind of go through. If you get to a point where you can no longer do it as a side project and it's making enough money that you could sustain yourself, then quitting makes a lot of sense. If you cannot yet sustain yourself and you feel the pressure, either accept the fact you will grow slower or get a partner 
who can help you as well so that you have more hands or go to your employer and tell them, listen, this is taking off. I don't want to leave. And, you know, employers value good employees. Mm-hmm. See if you can work flexibly. So, you know, the woman I told you about earlier who had the candles over in London, she works one day a week from her garage in Wimbledon, which basically is her workshop, so that she can take deliveries and work there. And her employer is totally supportive. So many times these days, employers are far more flexible than they were in the past and will actually allow you to work on your 10%. With the understanding that when you're at the office, you're, you know, you're going to be really focused on their business as well. Yeah. And I'm a firm believer, Patrick, in outsourcing. So as long as you're building this side business, if there's things that you can kind of farm out until you just cannot farm it and the business absolutely needs you there 100 percent. So if you're like, yeah, I got to leave because I do these data API sheets every day and I'm, you know, then that stuff you should farm out to India, Philippines, use Upwork, use some other tool until it's imperative that you have to be present 100 percent of the time. I think you should continue working your full time gig and build up your team that way. Yes. And there is all these platforms like Upwork or 99designs or Bunny, all these great platforms where you can find people who live all over the world, who have specific skills that you may not have at an affordable price. And that's what I did when I needed a logo. Listen, and if you're a graphic designer, don't get mad at me. But I was checking with a friend of mine and she was like, it's $10,000 for a branding package. And I was like, listen, your stuff's amazing. And I would love to be able to do that. But I'm, you know, I'm just getting going here. I don't want to spend that kind of money. I found somebody online. It was, it's not the greatest logo in the history of logos, but for $300, I got a logo that was good enough for me for the first year that we, you know, and then I went back and got something better. Listen, if you do your homework a little bit, you can find some steals on places like Fiverr. And Upwork, where you can bring a designer on and do a one-time job for a hundred bucks for a cool logo. So I think graphic designers probably just need to maybe shift focus too. And if they want to get volume a little bit, maybe they should consider getting on them very platforms that we talked about. Tell us the kind of types of 10% entrepreneurs, Patrick. Tell us what you think those types are. You mentioned something at the beginning of the interview here where you said, you know, we're all entrepreneurs. I'm really interested to hear about that a little bit more that you really think we're all entrepreneurs at heart because we have paper routes and such. Do you really believe that everybody's an entrepreneur? And what are some of those types of 10 percenters? What do they look like? It's a great question. So here's what's interesting. I have a couple of different ways I think about this. I've done a lot of thinking about this because you know, you read these things, entrepreneurs, are, are they born or are they made? Mm-hmm. There's a kind of like an ongoing debate about that, which is which is good. I think that conversation is productive. But, you know, I go to places like in America, we start out as kids with the lemonade stand and those kinds of things. And, and I think that those are all things that we do. And then we sort of get distracted or do other things or get beat about us. But, you know, it's it's a natural activity. Commerce is natural for humans. And what's been interesting is I've traveled around the world. Spent, I've done a bunch of book events in Latin America and Africa. And I was in Uganda last year doing an event in, in Kampala. And a guy got up um, and he said, like, he was awesome. He's like, yeah, like, I really like this book. So like, we already do this. So thanks for telling us about it. But cool. In our society, you know, we are um, a developing market economy. Our labor market is was a lot of unemployment. And so people hustle. They do all kinds of different things to make their living. Mm-hmm. And so you don't necessarily have just one job. At the end of the day, that's really what I'm getting at. It's the people getting up in the morning and saying, how am I going to go out in the world and be successful, make money, you know, make my life more interesting, build something of importance to me personally? And so I told the guy, my response was like, 
totally appreciate that. The difference is, let me flip the script a little bit. This is also about creating something that's yours. So for example, side hustles, everybody's talking about side hustles. You know, 40% Mm -hmm. of millennials have side hustles. Working for Uber as a driver is a side hustle, but it's not being a 10% entrepreneur. There's nothing wrong with it, but 10% entrepreneurs own something. They own something that is theirs that they can grow, even maybe sell one day. That's the real distinction. And so 10% entrepreneurs, I have five types in the book. It's either somebody who invests in companies with their money, invests with their time to be an owner, um, starts something and runs it on the side. That's a founder. Or somebody who is uh, the last two types are the aficionado and the 110% entrepreneur. Aficionado is somebody who engages in a project that goes after a passion. Like maybe they like cooking and so they invest in a restaurant or an advisor to or a founder to a restaurant and cook there sometimes. Or the 110% entrepreneur is somebody who is already an entrepreneur and uses 10% entrepreneurship to diversify themselves, to meet new people, to build connections into other opportunities. Because maybe one day their startup doesn't work out, they're going to be looking for a job. And this is a great way for them to build up a pipeline of opportunities. That makes a lot of sense. And I think you're spot on in terms of identifying those types of entrepreneurs, those 10% entrepreneurs, that is. One of the things that you bring up in the book is finding ventures and analyzing and then ultimately committing to the venture. What are the steps that you would look at to do that? What's your take on that? It's chapter seven of the book. And my goal here was... I've been working in venture capital for the majority of my career. I've invested in over 20 companies, probably 30 now. So I have done this a bunch of times. I know how to assess a project. And you'll use this process I'm going to tell you about. You'll use it whether you're investing your time, your money, or just being a founder to determine if a project makes sense, right? What I didn't want to happen, the thing that kept me up at night when I was writing the book was that I would put the book out and people would get excited about this and start investing their time and money into things that were terrible ideas, And that I would somehow be hearing from like, you know, people like I lost all my money because of you. And so I didn't want that to happen because at the end of the day, I want you to be as uh, closely for success as possible. Mm -hmm. No, I want you to be in the right spot to be able to do something special. Mm -hmm. And so what this chapter is all about is really distilling down what I have learned as an investor. And it comes down really to three things. The first is, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of obvious, invest in what you know. So if you're going to invest in in an industry or a company, really know something about that. You don't have to know everything because you can always go out and do the homework to find out what you don't know. I'm not out there buying Bitcoin because I just don't get it. I I don't understand it. I won't engage with that. I do things that I understand. Second, same thing with the people. You got to know the people, some of the people who are involved. You have to know what kind of people are. Are they competent? You got to really have a sense for, you know, people drive new ventures. If you don't know these people, that's why I don't invest in angelists and stuff like that. Because if I don't know, if I'm not sat across the table and look the person in the eye, yep. I don't want to be my partner. Yep. Even if you came to me tomorrow and I've had this happen, I've had people come to me because, you know, they, you write a book and, and so they reach out to you and which is always nice to hear from them, but I've never met them before. And these are people who are well known. Mm. They're business celebrities and they're like asking you to invest in their project. And I'm so thankful to be offered that opportunity, but I politely decline because I just don't know them. Right. And finally, and probably that a little different, the first two, which are a little more obvious, is you really want to know what your role is going to be because the whole point of this is not just to set it and forget it. You want to be involved. And so you want to understand what you're going to be doing, how that corresponds to the realities of your life, whether it makes sense for you. Yeah, that's really practical, strong advice. If you're looking to look at new projects or ventures or whatever it may be in terms of taking some simple steps. And the reason why I like it, how you kind of break it down is because 
sometimes we make it deeper than it has to be, right? We make it a lot more complicated than it has to be when we're looking at different projects that may work for us. And what may work for Patrick may not work for you either. So the last thing you want to do is run up behind him and start your own advisor group and all this other stuff because you've never been good with money. So why do that? People invite me to things all the time that are amazing opportunities for somebody else. (laughs) Right. Yes. So Patrick, wrapping up here, what has been those things during your transition, even today, that you think are good lessons that you've learned as a 10% entrepreneur that you could offer as advice to other people that are listening today? I love that question because I learned by doing and it wasn't easy. Sometimes it was pretty damn scary. Mm-hmm. It's almost Halloween. So I have <laughs> in my head scary stuff. I mean, it was frightening. Like, you know, I, my hand was shaking the first time I signed a contract for one of my projects. It was like, whoa, mm. uh, what have I learned? I think number one, this is not a get rich quick scheme. This is a lifestyle. It's something you're building for the long term. So please, if you've been listening to me, I think you'll know I'm super pragmatic. Like I'm not telling you, you can just do a couple things here and there and you're going to be able to retire. That is not the game we're playing here. Because mm-hmm. if it sounds too good to be true, it, it probably is. is. Yep. That's A. B is you don't have to do this alone. This is about leveraging your network on the people around you and that'll make you way more successful. And three is this is fun. This is supposed to be fun. And if you're not having fun, then you're not doing the right projects. And so I enjoy it. Like I never feel like I'm working because I'm doing things that I'm good at and that I enjoy and that are fun with great people. And it's sort of like throwing a party. If you have the right food and the right music and the right guests, it just, you know, you never think about all the prep work you put into it because you're enjoying the party too much. And that is what it can be like if you do it, if you do it right. Do you think everyone, everyone, even the person that said, you know what, I work at the dry cleaners. I've been really cool up to this point. I'm fine. Do you think everyone should be considering themselves a 10% entrepreneur and going for it? Yes. And I'm going to tell you a story because in the beginning, most of the people I knew who were doing this were people who I knew socially or, or from school and stuff. So these are people that were tended to be more white collar workers, right? Mm-hmm. I have met all these people in all over the world from all kinds of different backgrounds who are doing things. They may not call it 10%. They do now because I make them, but um, <laughs> they may not have called it that originally. But the story that really I loved, again, I'm going to go back to Africa with this, is that I had a guy, I was over in Kenya working on a project for the World Bank last year or two years ago. And my driver, this guy named Joshua, he lives in in the capital in Nairobi, but he's actually from like this total village way out in the middle of nowhere. And he has 15 siblings. And so he was telling me the bookstore in Nairobi had my book. They had a bunch of copies and I I totally like freaked out and bought them all. (laughs) Probably not the right answer. I should have left them for people to buy them there. But I started buying a bunch of copies and then um, because I was having book party in Uganda and I needed every copy I could find. And I gave him a copy and signed it to him because he was just a really amazing, awesome, really nice person. Mm-hmm. And he came back a couple of days later having read it. And he said, you know, this is really great. You know, I do this already, right? I'm like, okay, tell me more. And so he tells me that he and his 15 siblings each year contribute money into a pot. They bought real estate and sold it for three times their money. Then they bought another piece of real estate, opened a store that sells hardware in their home village. Their brother runs the store and they're doing a cash on cash return of 20% a year. Wow. So this is somebody who I don't believe went to university. I I didn't ask him. I don't think he did. Right. He may have done. He's working as a driver, which is a perfectly fine job, but it's not like, you know, he's at the president of the bank. Yep. 
But he and his siblings are doing this. And in fact, there's a whole culture of doing these things in many parts of the world. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, Patrick, you and your Harvard degree, that's good for you, but this is not for me. I'm telling you, it can be for you. It can be something as simple as taking your grandmother's jam recipe, if you like to cook and cooking them. There's a company called Stonewall Kitchen that is doing hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue that I worked for one year on a project in business school. These guys started out selling jam at farmer's markets. Mm. That was a 10% for them. And it turned into this huge business. Anybody can do this. Truly, we undervalue some of the gifts and things that we bring to the culture, to your city, to your neighborhood, whatever the case is. And people are willing to pay for it because sometimes you look at yourself and say, I'm just me. Why would anybody want to talk to me or why would they read my book? And there's a million out there. Or why would they do this, that and the other? And we have to sometimes stop undervaluing ourselves and just learn how to appreciate it, put it out there and then let that speak for itself rather than shutting ourselves down before we make a move. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you what's so interesting is, I mean, I have conversations with people all the time. People who the average citizen would be like, wow, this person is ridiculous. They went to XYZ school and they worked at XYZ company and they are just as insecure as anybody else. Absolutely. It's funny you bring that up because I know we're talking a lot about London all of a sudden, but I was in London and I was talking to a young lady who is probably in a position like that. She does really well. And her and I just had an opportunity to talk separate. She brought up some points and I asked her, I said, are you insecure? I asked her that direct question and she said, yes, I am. And I think we all deal with those things. But you brought up a point earlier where you were like, just do it afraid, man. You're right. This is Halloween. Just kind of do it afraid. You'll be surprised what comes back to you sometimes when you just throw it out there. I like that. That's a really good way of putting that. So, Patrick, if people want to buy the book, if they want to hear some musings by you, if they want to read more, whatever it is, how can they find you? How can they get the book? How can they just reach you and just dig in more into Patrick? So the book is called The 10% Entrepreneur. Live Your Startup Dream Without Quitting Your Day Job, published by Penguin Portfolio. It's available at your bookstore. Little bookstores don't have business books anymore, sadly, but obviously Barnes and Noble and it's Amazon, mm-hmm. it's on Kindle, it's on Audible. And you can also find lots of resources and, and additional writing and all kinds of cool stuff like sample contracts for some of the things we talk about on my website. It's patrickmcginnis.com, P-A-T-R-I-C-K-M-C-G-I-N-N-I-S.com. You can also take a quiz about what kind of 10% entrepreneur you are. You can download a free chapter of the book. If you go to patrickmcginnis.com slash build your 10, I have a free workbook that you can actually help you start thinking about some of the things you got to do to get set up to do your 10%. And finally, find me on LinkedIn. We have a Facebook group. It's a group slash 10% club, 10 entrepreneur club, Twitter at PJ McGinnis, LinkedIn. And am I missing anything? And they all link to my website, YouTube. If you want to find me, I promise you, if you Google Patrick McGinnis, you will probably think to yourself, wow, He's more Patrick than I can handle. (laughs) Well, we'll have a lot of that stuff linked up in the page for you guys. Patrick, I really appreciate you, man. So much wisdom here. I can't thank you enough. Guys, I hope you go out and purchase this book, The 10% Entrepreneur. Live your startup dream without quitting your day job. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The next episode of the Marketplace Podcast drops on Sunday. Drops every Sunday. If you like what we're doing, leave us a rating, a review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to help others find out about the show. I got love for you, and I know you have it for me. Help me raise the bar even higher. 
And for more information about the show, follow me on Twitter at the handle P. Willis Sr. Until next Sunday, keep dreaming, keep pushing, and I'll do the same, and I'll talk to you soon. My style is impetuous, my defense is impregnable, and I'm just ferocious.